0: I'm Haley Bloom-Peterson. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Our Stories, Our Health podcast featuring our very own Dr. Hannah Lixson talking about all things COVID-19. So we recorded our very first, you know, bonus episode of the podcast last March. And I went back to listen to it um, just to see kind of, you know, where we were then. And um, it was Right at the start of the first Stay Home Minnesota period, you were waiting for COVID test results and actually got them while we were talking, um, but it was still when testing was really limited and you were just Mm -hmm. starting to get trained on how to do video appointments. So it's just to me, it's just so wild how far we've come since then. But then at the same time, you know, every new turn in this COVID journey has presented new challenges and new problems are arising um and so it it makes me there's this phrase that my dad has said um i probably throughout my life but i've been remembering it more recently if it's not one thing it's the same thing and he you know includes an expletive so um i'm not going to put that here but um it it's it's just so true. <laughs> um, so, so today I want to talk about one of those problems. So we've got a vaccine. Well, we've got multiple vaccines. But distributing them is a huge challenge. Distributing them equitably and targeting those most in need, most impacted by COVID-19 is not a bump in the road. It is um, a mountain to climb. Um, so... When you think about vaccine distribution and equitable distribution of this vaccine, what are some of the the top things on your mind?
1: So I'm actually going to go back and disagree with you already, Haley. I don't think that uh, equitable distribution is a bump or a mountain. I think it's simply a choice we have to make. Uh, and, we haven't yet gotten to a point that the people in charge of allocating vaccines and distributing vaccines have made that choice or prioritized that choice of equity. Uh, And so uh, we're certainly capable of doing it. We just haven't. We should be looking at which communities are most affected by this illness. And in Minnesota, black folks are more than three times as likely as white people to get sick with COVID and die from COVID. Uh, Latino Minnesotans are more than six times as likely as white Minnesotans to die from this infection. And yet uh, we are not designing our vaccine administration programs to get vaccines to those people urgently you know, and, and it's a failure. It's a complete failure, in my opinion. Uh, and we have to hold our leaders accountable to ensure that vaccine gets to where it needs to be, which is to the people most affected by this virus. Um, and sadly, the reason that Black and Indigenous and immigrant and Latinx communities have been so just hurt by this virus are the same reasons they're being neglected in the vaccine administration. So it all it, it's can you tell I'm a little upset Haley?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in thinking about what the plan is right now, we have been targeting older Minnesotans which you know, bringing it back to your point, are disproportionately white Minnesotans. Um, and that's just a fact that what is it? 90% of Minnesotans over the age of 65 or 75 are white. It's a staggering number. And so when we target by age that, that automatically excludes so many of our posse neighbors. Um, but then at the same time, how do you, how do we reconcile the fact that so many people are dying in congregate care facilities and, and then the added piece of how do we get to some of the communities that need it most when we are um lacking public health infrastructure there's vaccine hesitancy everywhere um we need trusted partners in communities in order to to make sure that we get buy in from communities so how how do you kind of reconcile and also you know tell me where i'm wrong in that but how do you reconcile all of these different Pieces when you're thinking about this distribution process.
1: Yeah, let's take these things one at a time. So, when we started vaccine administration in Minnesota, the state brought together a vaccine advisor, a vaccine allocation advisory committee, uh, is made up of bioethicists, public health workers, community representatives, hospital representatives. And they were tasked with creating a plan that was effective and equitable, that would protect the most Minnesotans uh, and also protect the most vulnerable. Uh, And equity was a big piece of what they were thinking about. So they initially came up with this tiered process so group 1a was meant to be healthcare workers and people in congregate living facilities in Minnesota and so when we first started vaccinating those were the groups who were vaccinated uh and that's why i was part of that first wave of vaccines because i care for patients in a covid clinic you know so i'm a i'm a was in the first wave of the first group because of that uh and the plan was after that to expand into, you know, other categories as designated by this group and then okayed and, and made official by, by our state leaders. The The notes from these committee meetings are public and I've read them and they talked about things like, okay, who are the populations at risk? You know, we we targeted people who are in long-term care congregate living facilities, but what about people in other congregate living facilities, like group homes or mental health treatment centers and addiction treatment centers? Uh, what about people who are in forced congregate living facilities, like like jails and prisons, um, people who are in ICE detention? Uh, and then who are the other first-line, you know, essential workers for, that need to be you know, targeted and have really high risk. So our food service workers and certainly our educators and childcare workers, but also, you know, the people who are working in factories, maintaining our food supply, the people who, you know, drive our buses and really allow everybody else to work and, and can't go to work without exposing themselves to others, right? The people who can't work from home. Mm-hmm. And they were having thoughtful discussions about about these groups and how to prioritize them. Um, And, you know, the last I saw, they had been talking about doing, you know, a next wave of, you know, essential frontline workers, other congregate, people living in these other non-voluntary congregate living situations, and people 75 and older as a second wave. Before they made an announcement about that, uh there was a federal recommendation from HHS saying like you know actually you can just vaccinate everybody 65 and older and so governor walls and the health department in minnesota announced that healthcare facilities could vaccinate their patients who are 65 and older in addition to healthcare workers during the first one a wave of the vaccine That was a month, over a month ago, and we've never moved past that. We're we're just stuck there. And so so since then, instead of approaching vaccine distribution based on need and risk and exposure, uh, we've simply done it based on age. And so the health department and governor's office have you know, targeted some educators uh, and childcare workers by lottery system through the schools, but they haven't made any, you know, public effort to vaccinate other frontline workers who are equally exposed. Uh, There's been no public communication about food workers, about people who work in prisons or jails, or about people who are incarcerated, about people in group homes, about people in treatment facilities. And all, not all, but a lot of the vaccine now is going to the healthcare organizations. So Fairview and Alina and Mayo and Hennepin Healthcare and health partners, Park Nicollet. uh, And they are then tasked with providing vaccine to people who meet the criteria laid out by the state, which right now is just based on age, is just 65 and older. So so we went from having at least a vision of a thoughtful equitable plan to essentially what what feels like a free for all and and i know that some essential workers do have access to the vaccine you know outside of the educators who are being vaccinated have access through their jobs i know that some people who work in uh, corrections have access, but but no one's made an announcement that that's happening. I just happen to know that it is. Uh, I don't know if it's happening equitably. I don't know if it's happening everywhere or just in certain facilities. You know, right now there is seemingly no transparency about the vaccine that's being distributed outside of the fact that we are targeting people 65 and older and trying to go as fast as possible. So, so that's the, the backstory and the framework. So, you know, so what do I think we, who should we be targeting? Yes, we absolutely needed to get vaccine into our most frail elderly, the people in our long-term care facilities. And we did that. Uh, But I think we then needed to follow this plan as outlined by our, our vaccine Allocation Advisory Committee, and and instead we've pretty much ignored it. They haven't met since early January, and uh, I don't know why. Uh, And I've heard frustration from the people on that committee as well, who have spoken out and said, "Why aren't we? Why aren't we
0: following any of these plans?" I think the the fact that there was this board, and then recommendations changed federally, and then then our plan changed, it just adds to the confusion of it all so much too, which becomes another barrier to getting the folks that need vaccinations vaccinated.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So so I think one of the next questions you'd asked initially was about the actual distribution um, and the inequities there. So so, you know, the major inequity in my mind is just who we're allowing to access the vaccine, the rules we've made about who can and cannot. You know, so that's that's the number one thing in my mind. Now, the the next issue, and this is also a huge issue, is is how people can access the vaccine, how we're designing the system to get vaccine to folks. So right now, a lot depends on where someone happens to go to the doctor. So each healthcare system is approaching vaccinating their patients differently. And most of these healthcare systems are only giving vaccine to people who have been seen within their system in the past few years, you know, so, um, you know at hennepin we are reserving our vaccine for folks who get care at hennepin and at alina they're doing the same for their alina patients and mayo for theirs so it's you know a lot just happens to depend on where you have chosen to go to the doctor and as you know, Haley, a lot of people don't have much of a choice on where they go to the doctor it depends on the insurance they're given from their employer, or if they don't have access to insurance, they really don't have access to a doctor or a clinic. So so there's just massive inequities in, in that aspect of this alone. Uh, then you have the ways that the clinics are and the hospital systems are you know communicating with patients a lot of the initial communication has happened online through our electronic medical record systems and that's because it's an easy way you click a button and all of a sudden everyone at a certain age gets an email uh, it goes out to their record but people don't use or have comfort with these online systems in a universal way, right? Someone who doesn't speak English uh, is not going to be savvy in checking their MyChart account to then go on and log on and add their name to a list or respond within 20 minutes for an open vaccine slot if something's available. So again, this, this type of system favors um, people who are privileged enough both to have broadband access, have computer access, know how to navigate this world of, you know, online registration. Uh it, you know, it, then we have, have folks making phone calls and doing outreach, but and that's important and that's good, but but during this first wave, the people who are are savvy and in the know and know how to navigate and advocate for themselves are the ones who got the vaccine first because they could call and call and go online and check and try to make appointments and make those appointments and get in um, as opposed to someone mm-hmm. who's waiting until it's their turn on that list to get a call from someone um, saying hey we have a vaccine available to you uh, so and then again they're then beholden to the system where they've been getting care you know so when when did that system prioritize making those outreach phone calls uh, with or without an interpreter, as the case may warrant. So, so that's you know hugely inequitable. Uh, and you know, then it's a matter of actually getting to where you can get the vaccine. So, you know, we you know can pretty safely assume that people who've gotten care someplace have the ability to get to the clinic where they normally get their care. Um, But what about the people who were trying to engage through the health department's pilot sites, you know, that initially were scattered all throughout the state? uh, Or now their main sites are in Minneapolis and Duluth, you know, that's inaccessible for the vast majority of folks, you know, and I know that they're, they're doing some with local pharmacies, small pharmacies, you know, trying to target some rural areas, but, but transportation to a pharmacy site is hard for a lot of people. So, you know, we now need to be thinking about how do we get vaccine to the people who need it? And and I can almost guarantee you that there are conversations being had about, about methods of doing that. You know, some, some people talk about like a mobile vaccine unit, uh, uh, doing targeted outreach to different communities. I know some of our healthcare organizations are doing community events to get vaccine to people who don't necessarily engage with the healthcare system otherwise, and that's great, but that's a minority of the vaccine distribution, you know, so Fairview did a fantastic community event uh, through a local church to get vaccine to, um, you know, Latinx community members, and it was great, they vaccinated a bunch of people, but it was a teeny little fraction of the number of people they vaccinated in that week. Uh, so you know how do we prioritize that rather than making it uh, a little bonus on the side? Uh, and so that's right. you know that's my concern. I'm really glad that that some of our healthcare organizations are doing that work, but it should be it should be systematic. That should be the goal, not. Not just depending on the whim of a particular healthcare organization and their choice to do the right
0: thing, so we've been using age as the cutoff. Um, but what happens when communities life expectancy is below that age, which is the case in a lot of um bipoc communities. there are there are people that are not reaching that age that we've set as the sort yeah. of, arbitrary, not entirely arbitrary because yes, like older people are dying more frequently than younger people. But if it's all relative, you know, an 85 year old person dying in one community is a typical age to die, but in another community it might be 55. Um, yeah. So how, how do you sort of reconcile that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's such an important question. And and it touches on a couple things I'd like to talk about. So, you know, the first is, you know, when you look at the numbers, absolutely age is a really big predictor of mortality and severe illness with COVID infection. But what we see is that uh, if you use that 65 uh, cutoff, that 65 years old cutoff, uh, something like 12% of Deaths in white people are in people less than 65 years old, but in black communities it's closer to 30 to 35% of deaths are in that younger population. Wow. Uh so, so it's it's different, right? And um and then I think we also have to take a really big step back and look at why we have different life expectancies across different groups. Uh and in Minneapolis, it's you know i don't know that we've really talked about this a lot on the podcast but but housing and housing policy are one of the biggest drivers of health and we can make a direct link back to housing policies in the 1920s and 1930s and show how they impact the health and life expectancy of people in Minneapolis and St Paul today Uh, The Wilder Foundation uh, mapped out life expectancy by zip code uh, a number of years ago in the Twin Cities. And if you haven't, I'd encourage anybody to to look at the pictures of that data um, and compare it. This is current life expectancy data by zip code. Compare that to the maps from uh, the 1930s when the government decided which neighborhoods would be eligible for new homeowner loans. This was the concept of redlining. Um, What they did is they designated neighborhoods where essentially at that point, it was Black um, families lived and said, oh, these neighborhoods are too risky. We won't um, provide mortgages uh, in these neighborhoods. And those are the same neighborhoods where Today, we see lower life expectancy. Um, And so it's a direct link between these very racist um, housing policies from almost a century ago, affecting life expectancy in those same neighborhoods of North Minneapolis, the old Rondo neighborhood, uh, Cedar Riverside, affecting life expectancy in those same communities now. And those are neighborhoods that are are you know higher percentage of you know people of color live in those neighborhoods still uh so so in order to combat that type of ingrained just just intentional harm to communities we we can't assume that by opening a wide net and giving everybody equal access to a vaccine based on age that somehow that's right. Somehow that's fair because it's not because our own government made it unfair. Uh, And so it's, it's a direct link. And so, you know, in order to be equitable, we have to, you know, Reach those those at risk communities first, and give them every resource possibly available, um, and then focus in on you know by numbers the majority population in the state, which is white. Um, they're not the ones suffering as disproportionately. Uh, you know, of course we can we can look at our rural communities that do have significant health inequities, um, and and I think you know, that, that adds a layer of complication to this, you know, looking at things just by race, because we know that our rural, um, neighbors do need more support as well. Um, but within the cities, you know, it is, there is a direct link there. Uh, Mm -hmm. and so it's not random that life expectancy is different. Uh, and so because it's not random, we, have to be equally intentional in trying to combat that.
0: I I appreciate that you bring up the wilder research and, and looking at the zip codes and life expectancy because there's also I've seen um, maps that connect broadband access to zip code and also COVID cases and deaths to zip code. And they're the same maps, essentially, you know, the same areas that were kind of set aside as the black and brown communities in the twin cities are the same areas that are having more COVID cases or have worse internet options. Um, and so it's all very, very interconnected. And I think so many people right now, like this is an acute moment in our lives. This is a thing that's happening right now that we look at as something that is going to end and then we're going to be better and move past it, but I think the way that you've just explained this it just is so stark to me how much this is not a blip in our radar this is this is just a continuation of the healthcare system and the the systemic racism that we have had in this country for decades centuries. Yeah. No, exactly.
1: Exactly. This is this is exactly what our system was designed to do. This vaccine is remarkable, uh, but it is not a panacea. It is a huge step, but until we have everybody vaccinated around the world, this virus has the capacity to keep mutating, developing resistance, changing in ways that we will need to keep adjusting to. So, you know, the thought of going back to quote unquote normal life, I I can't imagine going into a crowded space without a mask on for a very long time personally. Um, Do I think it will be safe for most of our kids to go back to school and do some normal activities? Absolutely with this vaccine, but, but will there be risk of this virus or a version of it for a long time? Yeah, probably. And so, you know, right now this, this, this vaccine is a tool, just like our masking and distancing are a tool to protect us. And, um, you know, we are not to the point yet where we can let go of any of them. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm holding on tight to my mask
0: for now. Yeah. Um, we, I think, just scratched the surface on this conversation. So um, stay tuned. We will be coming back to it. But for now, thanks so much, Hannah, for sharing your thoughts and giving us all something to think about as we make our way through this next period of time with this pandemic. We know it's hard to stay up to date on all that's happening around COVID-19, but we're here to make that a little bit easier. Our Stories, Our Health is committed to bringing you timely, science-based information and the stories of Minnesotans as they make their way through this challenging time. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Our Health, MN. that's O-U-R-H-E-A-L-T-H-M-N, or head to our website to share your own story, OurStoriesOurHealth.org. We get through this together, Wash your hands, wear a mask, and maintain social distance. For you, for me, for all of us.